This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 13 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey Andrew. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm doing okay. My mom keeps nagging me to watch Clint Eastwood movies with her, but I keep telling her that I have to do the show. Really? Does your mom cuddle up next to you and awkwardly put her hand on your leg? Yeah, while she's smoking cigarette after cigarette after cigarette, so. (laughs) It sounds like you have a pretty healthy relationship with your mom. Yeah, it it, it could be better, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, as always, our listeners can email detectthis at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Also, be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. If you leave us a positive review on iTunes, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. And speaking of which, Charlie, before we dive into this week's episode, we've got a few honorary members to induct. Hooray! Yeah, we got three new iTunes reviews. First off, we got a review from Jamie Fike, who writes... Yay! So glad you fellows are back for season two. Let's do this! Dig in the in-depth talk about my favorite new show. Definitely my most anticipated cast every week. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, I was thinking, Charlie, who, what, what kind of person do we need on the Detect This team? And I've decided I think we should make Jamie our honorary diamond grill manufacturer. <laughs> Want to insult your enemies every time you smile? Get Jamie. To help you out. I mean, just plain old grills are just so boring these days, Andrew. We need more vulgarities written across them. You know, I'm thinking about getting one that says fuck you uh, later this week. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm thinking about getting one that just says time is a flat circle. That's a lot of, uh, I'm not sure you have enough teeth for all those letters, Andrew. What was the, what was the quote from last week? Don't act hungry even when you're eating or something? Oh yeah, that would be perfect. (laughs) Again, not sure, I mean, you're going to probably have to cram two or three letters on each tooth. Yes. I'm not sure how legible it will be when you smile. It'll be hard to read, but for the people that take the time to to pay attention, I think that it'll be worth it. (laughs) Well, we got another review from Ghost Pepper Nate who writes, I'm new to this podcast, but I like what I heard from Season 2, Episode 1 recap from Chuck and Andy. (laughs) It's funny, my boss always called me Chuck. (laughs) My middle school teacher always called me Andy. (laughs) How did you know, Ghost Pepper Nate? How did you know? (laughs) You know, I'm thinking that we need to make Ghost Pepper Nate our honorary drink mixer. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you're a corrupt mayor with a drinking problem, you need someone like Ghost Pepper Nate who knows how to shake your liquor so you don't get shaken down. I know. If you come home late from a terrible meeting and you're just down on the rocks and, you know, it, it takes so much time to just mix a drink, Andrew, I think that that's uh, quite productive. Yeah. I mean, Ghost Pepper Nate, he makes drinks so delicious, you'll drink them straight from the shaker. Aww. <laughs> Just like Vinci's corrupt mayor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced, Charlie, that by the end of this season, there will be another dead body to investigate, and it's going to be the mayor who just drank himself to death. 
I don't know. A lot of these characters seem to have drinking problems, Andrew. What what makes you think it's going to be the mayor? Every single scene, Charlie, he is completely hammered. That, that, that That's a valid point. <laughs> oh, and our last review is from Andy Nick, who writes, The problem with podcasts about television shows is that we have to wait for the return of both. The best thing about podcasts about television shows is that they both come back at the same time. Glad to hear things fire back up. Cheers to season two. Thanks, Andy Nick. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I was thinking about it, Charlie, and I realized, you know, there are people who listen to this podcast who might have water stains on their ceiling that remind them of their traumatic childhood and cause them to have an existential crisis in which they doubt their own existence. You mean your wife or your partner can't just comfort you? It's hard. It's hard. But... I think Andy Nick should be our honorary handyman to help fix those water stains right up. Yeah, maybe he could help out with the leaks, too. They're just all over my ceilings, Andrew. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for the reviews. It really means a lot that you listen and, and you support the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, you guys. Well, let's dive into this week's episode. Uh, today we're going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 2 of True Detective. The episode is titled Night Finds You. And, of course, it was written by Nick Pizzolatto, and it was directed by Justin Lin, who also directed last week's episode. As a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. If you have not seen the episode, you should go watch it and then come back and listen, because we will be getting into a lot of detail about what happened. Before we begin, Charlie, why don't you remind us what happened? Ray, Paul, and Annie are all assigned to Casper's murder. Paul is instructed to investigate corruption in the city of Vinci, and Annie is told that Ray might be dirty. Meanwhile, Frank discovers that with the death of Casper, he has no stake in the railway deal and is effectively bankrupt. Casper is revealed to have been in the habit of hiring escorts. It's also revealed that Paul is probably a closeted homosexual. Annie seems interested about sexual BDSM, and Ray's ex-wife wants sole custody of their son. At the end of the episode, Ray visits another house owned by Casper, only to be shotgun blasted in the chest by a man in a bird mask. At point-blank range. Didn't see that one coming, Charlie. No, I did not. I, I can't say I'm totally emotionally invested in these characters yet, but I will definitely say that I didn't see that coming. It's kind of gutsy in uh, almost Game of Thrones-esque type of way to just kind of pull the trigger on a main star. I mean, we don't know if he's dead yet or not, but even if they find a way to, to effectively defend how he could still be alive... Even if it's with, I don't know, rock salt. It was so close to his chest, Andrew, that how could you survive that? How could you survive that kind of attack? Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But I'm, I'm curious, Charlie, overall, what did you think of this episode of True Detective? Did you feel like this was a step up from last week? I did feel like it was a step up, maybe because I was so frustrated with the pilot and... I got really angry about it, and now I've had a week to digest that and accept that this is the show that we're dealing with now. So I went in with lowered expectations, and while I still think that the problem with this season so far, even though it's only been two episodes, is that a majority of it consists of exposition, and then something happens in the last scene. That's really most of what happens is just in the final uh, segment of the show, which works as cliffhangers, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot of meat to chew on here. 
especially compared to uh, the first season of the show. At the same time, uh, I think that there weren't nearly as many uh, Pizzawatzos as we're calling them now. Uh, and I think that there was at least some development. I mean, no one was spouting out exposition about Rachel McAdams to her face. And she actually got to, uh, you know, talk about herself in a way that I felt gave her some personality. And I like her performance. At the same time, not nearly as engaging as I want it to be. I feel very cold and distant. It's, it's a cold show, but I feel still feel at a distance from these characters. I still feel like they are kind of stereotypical, and we've seen these characters multiple times before. And there's a lot of exposition that is that couldn't be considered convoluted that you have to keep up with. But I didn't dislike it nearly as much as the first episode, and I'm trying to look up more on the bright side as to what is good about this season so far. Yeah, I agree with you, Charlie. I, I think that this overall was a step in the right direction. I did have to go back and watch the episode twice. Just, I did too. Just because everything with this corruption plot it's just it's been very confusing to try and figure out how everybody is connected agreed i yeah. think i finally figured it out uh but be before we dive into that charlie you did mention that last week we uh we started calling the pseudo philosophical nonsensical things that some of the characters will say on the show pizzolatos and as you mentioned uh we've decided we need to start calling those pizzawattos <laughs> because what? What do they mean? Yeah, there weren't nearly as many this week, but I still wrote a few down. Okay, Charlie, tell us, what were some of your favorite pizzawattos in this episode? Uh, the conversation with Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell in the car with, you know that expression about flies and honey, says Belcoro, and then Annie says, what would I want with a bunch of flies? And he responds, without flies, you can't fly fish. But what I liked about it this time is Rachel McAdams this like performs Annie in a way that reflects us as viewers, where she's like, I have no idea what the fuck that means. She kind of gave off this face like, all right, so at least there's some sort of audience surrogate in uh, Annie through a lot of these <laughs> obscure, riddle-esque bits of dialogue that Velcoros uh, utters throughout this episode. Uh, what was one of yours? Uh, I think pretty much that entire conversation between Vince Vaughn's character, Frank, and his wife that opens the episode, I think that could definitely count as a pizza what-oh. The entire monologue. <laughs> well, especially the end, when he starts wondering, what if I died down there? What if this is all a dream? You know, that's what that water stain reminds me of. That better not be foreshadowing that this season is building up to Vince Vaughn waking up in bed and nothing, none of this has happened. <laughs> like, that he's still in that basement. An eight-year-old Vince Vaughn is still in that basement. And he, this is all one big surreal hallucination. Yeah, I've I've heard people saying that they feel like this season has some David Lynchian aspects to it. I do think that you can make the case for that. However, I just have to say the opening scene, I liked it. It was a little bit on the nose. A little bit on the nose, and I think the suffocating close-up of Vince Vaughn was good for a while until it just stuck on him. And I was like, you know, like, it's not a bad shot, but it's not exactly the most interesting thing to look at to just be shoved into Vince Vaughn's face. And... 
well, I liked the visuals of the transition from how the water stains sync up with where his eyes are in the frame to uh, Casper's eyes that have now been, you know, completely drowned out with acid. I wish the composition, or for that, I wish that scene was shot in a different way so it wasn't so on the nose. And I'm a huge, huge David Lynch fan. I did think that the singer, we barely touched about this last week, but the singer who sings This Is My Least Favorite Life, and uh, I don't know what song she sang this week. It wasn't nearly as recognizable, but uh, she kind of reminds me of that singer in the bar in Twin Peaks that all everyone goes to, only like clearly way more depressed. And I think that, sure, some of the dialogue is Lynchian. I don't think Justin Lin knows how to capture a Lynchian vibe through his compositions and visual touches yet. It's no Mulholland Drive, Andrew, that's for sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned the singer in the bar, Charlie. That is uh, Lara Lynn, who is doing a lot of the music for this season. And you know how last week I mentioned that that scene in the bar was simultaneously the best scene of the episode and also the most irritating? Yes. I forgot to clarify why it's the most irritating. It's because of her. Yeah. I mean, she's not a bad singer. It's just the lyrics are just so on the nose. (laughs) Cutting back and forth between all of the characters drinking as this is my least favorite life plays over the soundtrack. That was one part I think we forgot to mention that really, in my opinion at least, delved into uh, self-parody. Yes, absolutely. Last week, I was just thinking, you know, this could be a good song, but it is so heavy-handed in True Detective. Like, oh, here are all these super broken, traumatized, depressed people meeting in a bar while you have this woman singing, this is my least favorite life. I mean, could you be less subtle? I I don't think so. (laughs) And then in this week, she's singing, you were alone, you were alive among the walking dead. He was a liar, (laughs) would not atone, still leaving tonight. I'm just like, oh my God, we get it. We get it. And not like I don't love uh, very depressing folk music, I mean, uh, or any kind of singer-songwriter material. I love Elliot Smith. I love Damien Rice. I love Bonnie Bear. Sometimes when I've had a bad day, I just want to curl up into a ball and listen to their music and, you know, just cry a little bit to get my angst out and just have some form of release. But... You're right. In this show, it's just like, why would everyone go to this bar? Don't usually when you go out for drinks, I know that this is true detective and all these characters are miserable, but usually like you go out to take the edge off and like kind of, you know, get on the dance floor. Like, you know, it's not a bar that I would want to go to at the very least. And every waitress look is clearly been physically abused and has cuts all over their faces and like everyone's miserable and i appreciate the style he's going for that justin lynn's going for but it was yeah like why would this bar retract so many people i mean it kind of makes sense if you're gonna get involved in in some sort of shady criminal deal you want to go to the place where everybody is so sad they're just going to be focused on drowning their sorrows in their alcohol as opposed to paying attention to what you're doing in the corner so yeah but then again you can go to a bar and listen to black by pearl jam on a jukebox and have a better time i don't know like, no, but then I... you might actually meet people who are happy and and want to talk to you yeah. So better to just go to a place where everybody is sad and will leave you alone. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you ask anyone if they could, you could buy them a drink at that bar, they'd take an empty bottle that they've already like chugged and just smash it over your head. Probably. <laughs> like, um, I do kind of like the uh, the waitress though. I like her character, but I mean the cuts on her face, we get it. I, I forget the name of the actress. She's on Jane the Virgin. She's playing a, a very different role. I've only seen the pilot of Jane the Virgin, but I absolutely adored it. Uh, who does she play? Wait, who does she play? I'm sorry. She plays the nurse who screws everything up. Oh, that's oh, you just blew my mind, Andrew. I knew I saw her from somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, I like her her vibe with Colin Farrell and the fact that she's kind of kind of flirting with him a little bit. And uh, I'm thinking, come on, Ray. You need to move on with your life. You need someone new. You're damaged. She's damaged. You could be good for each other. Yeah. That that uh, conversation also brought up the biggest uh, bit of foreshadowing in the episode when he says, uh, when Velcoro says, the only time I'd get a vacation is if I'd croak. <laughs> and it didn't really hit me the first time around. And then I watched the episode a second time and I was just like, oh, duh. That's what I liked about this episode in general. I feel like the first episode introduced us to these characters when they didn't know each other yet. And I feel that the dialogue and the uh, actors uh, playing off one another, now that we know all of their angst, even though I think there was, you know, they should have sped it up and really got these characters together faster in episode one. I did like uh, some of the relationships that are being formed. If Colin Farrell is dead, I will say that there is one thing that made me mad is that they set up his relationship with Annie, uh, Rachel McAdams' character, so well that if they don't get another scene together, I'm going to be upset. Let me ask you this, Charlie. The overall reaction to the premiere was a little bit mixed. Yeah. Do you think the response would have been better if it had been a two-hour premiere? To be honest, I'm not sure, because if I watch these two episodes back-to-back, I'm not sure how I would have reacted to this episode, because I still think, as I said previously, that not a lot happens in this episode. I was just kind of more accepting of, okay, this is what Pizzolatto's aiming for this season. I have to accept that and just kind of look as to what he's trying to accomplish here. And I feel like it would have been just a two hour. I would have felt like this episode was a slog had I seen it back to back with episode one. I think it might've worked better just because as you mentioned in this episode, we start to get our three main characters interacting with each other, having conversations with each other, getting kind of the vibe that Rust and Marty had in episode one. Uh, there's the, the, the events at the very end, which I think would have been an incredible cliffhanger to, to end a premiere on, you know, cause it would kind of make you feel like, oh my goodness, anything could happen in this season. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I just feel like it did a, 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 a decent job of fleshing out how Vinci operates mm-hmm. and what these different parties all want and who's looking into who and who's connected to who. And I just think overall, if we had gotten it all at once, it might have been better. And I think you might have had fewer people scratching their heads after the premiere. There were still parts of this episode that I was confused by, as you were, as I'm sure you were confused by certain elements of this too. When they are in the morgue looking at Casper's body, 
each of the characters in the morgue has a flashback, and then it cuts back to the morgue multiple times. And I kept thinking, why did they edit it this way? Why couldn't we have gotten all of the those scenes previously and then just stuck with the morgue and, and the autopsy? Because it felt almost like the editor or Pizzolatto or whoever's responsible for the way it's cobbled together almost had ADD and was writing the script like, oh, crap, I didn't put in this bit of exposition that will clear up this bit. Oh, I didn't put in this bit of exposition for this character, too. I'll just throw that in right now. Or, like, they, in the editing room, they were kind of like, oh, wait, the order we have it in is really disjointed. Why don't we just splice everything together? Did that confuse you at all, or am I just being a little too critical here? I actually think it worked, and I think it was probably necessary. There were several moments in this episode where we got a lot of exposition, but you know what? It was needed. I mean, we needed to have that police investigator, I cannot remember her name, I guess she works for the state, basically say, hey, we're investigating Vinci. Vinci's corrupt. It's a place of industry. Less than 100 people live there, and it's been a a city of vice since the early 1900s. Yeah. Did you recognize who her partner was, too? Uh, I believe that is C.S. Lee from Dexter. Yes, it is. I I immediately IMDb'd him just to make sure it was him, because I was so excited that he's on this show. Unfortunately, he's not nearly as funny as he was on Dexter, but... I'm just choosing to believe that after the traumatic events of Dexter, he moved to the West Coast... <laughs> and is it changed? Got the hell out of Florida. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I actually didn't mind a lot of the exposition and the editing in this episode. In fact, I thought that Justin Lin's direction was a lot more assured in this this second hour, especially in that scene at the end. That scene at the end was really well done. I will give him that. A little too many sh- overhead shots of L.A. that are literally, they're not of the same areas of L.A., but they had the same structure of panning over and then L.A. skyline. But look, Charlie, look at all of the crisscrossing lines because it represents how these characters' lives are crisscrossing and Vinci is a literal web of corruption. Ah, well... That makes me appreciate it a little more, I guess, when you put it that way. <laughs> the corruption-fueled plot line echoes a lot of uh, uh, what the plot in Chinatown kind of was. And with the 27 million gallons of toxic waste being dumped, I couldn't help but think of Chinatown again. Right. Chinatown's not toxic waste, it's water, but, you know, kind of reminded me of the same thing about how corrupt people with a lot of power are clearly mucking around in uh, something that is not good for the environment of this town. So, Right. And, and you know what? While we're on this corruption thing, Charlie, let me just make sure I have this sorted out. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, there's a railway deal going on. Correct. Frank, played by Vince Vaughn, wants to be a major investor in this railway deal because uh, the city will get to keep 75% of the tax revenue and a lot of that will go to him. Yep, that's what I got out of it. Okay, so he's trying to convince other people to invest, including the Russian mafia, Mm -hmm. and he gave millions of dollars to Casper, 
Yeah, $5 million to Casper. Yes, and Casper was supposed to give that money to the Catalyst Group, which is a corporation that's in charge of hiring all the contractors. Mm-hmm. Casper died. The money was not delivered to them. So now Frank is basically stuck because yep. they're not going to honor the agreement. So he's going around trying to scrounge up money wherever he can. And also he pays the mayor of Vinci thousands of dollars periodically, I guess for protection. Yeah. That's what I got out of it too. And on top of that, one theory I read, I'm not sure which article it was suggested. Maybe Casper did give these people the money and since he's dead, there's no way to prove that he did give them the money, and maybe they're just trying to yank Vince Vaughn's chain a little more. The uh, the the guy that Frank meets with says, hey, I'll make you the same offer again, $7 million. And Frank says, what do you mean? The original offer was 10 which makes me think that, okay, Casper was taking some money off the top and was getting him to pay some more. That's what I got out of it, too. Can I talk about one scene that did confuse me with Vince Vaughn's character, though? And maybe you can help clarify. Maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention to what was going on. But there's a scene where a character we have not met gets rear-ended. And then two men, the guys who are in the pickup truck who rear-ended him, pepper spray him when he gets out of his car. And then beat the crap out of him and then say, next time you're going in the truck. And then drive off, and then Vince Vaughn, who seems like he orchestrated this whole thing, is kind of like, hey, what's going on here? Like, hey, fella, you know, that, that guy's pepper sprayed you, what's going on? Like, I, I, what was that about? And do we know those characters? Was I just not... Were, were they in a previous scene that I just didn't notice? I, I, I don't think so. I get the impression that they are Frank's thugs, his henchmen. And he comes along to basically continue the shakedown, and he starts asking the guy, well, why would they do that to you? Why would they do that to you? Did you mouth off? Did you make a dirty gesture? And then he says something like, are you are you running one of the books at the sweatshop or something? Something like that. And Vince Vaughn plays it in a way where he kind of has to to give up this vibe, where he's almost playing it too stupid. Like, like, what do you mean they pepper sprayed you? Like, it just came off as so, like, hey, like, what's going on here? And I was like, okay, they're clearly, these two goons are clearly working for him. And I assume he's just blackmailing this guy. But who is he? Why did they introduce the character this way? Why didn't we see who this person is. I mean, we already got enough on our plate already, so I get it, but that was the one part where I thought, I even watched it a second time with my roommate, and my roommate was like, wait, who are those guys? And I couldn't even clarify who they were, so. Yeah, that was a little bit confusing. I think the main takeaway we're supposed to have is just that Vince Vaughn is shaking people down. Vince Vaughn is is trying to get money wherever he can, and, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna use force if he has to. Yeah. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about, Ray and Annie go to visit Casper's psychiatrist, played by Rick Springfield, (laughs) who has a desk covered in rocks that are clearly supposed to connote vaginas. Yeah, I got that, especially from the shot of that rock, and then Rachel McAdams, like, clearly giving it the stink eye. Not trying to, maybe, but had that reflexive facial reaction, like, ew. 
like, yeah, but. there's a lot of, of sexual stuff going on in this season. And I caught an interview with Pizzolatto where he said that for this season, he was inspired by Greek literature like Antigone and like Oedipus Rex. And I don't know if you've read Oedipus Rex recently, Charlie. I read it in high school. I just remember eye gouging and incest. But Well, there you go. We already have a guy with no eyes. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Oedipus Rex featured, and Antigone, I believe, that feature a, uh, a blind seer. Mm-hmm. So blindness is a key theme. And there's some some crazy sexual incest stuff that's going on. Yeah. And the interview I read with Pizzolatto, in that interview, he kind of implied that he liked Oedipus Rex because it is a detective story. And the detective ultimately discovers that he himself is the culprit, Mm -hmm. which he thought was an interesting idea. So I'm curious to see how that plays into this season of the show. Like, will one of our detectives discover that they unwittingly are part of this? Well, did you notice something else in that scene that I have to admit, I did not find on my own, but I found a little Easter, not an Easter egg, but a big possible clue in the background of that scene. Tell me what's going on. Okay, there's an article that Uprox wrote last night called Breaking Down True Detective Episode 2, What the Hell Just Happened, by Dustin Rolls. And I did not catch this the first time, but they have photographic evidence of this. When Velcoro and Annie sit down, there is a shot of Colin Farrell, or of Velcoro, and it's one of those you-blink-and-you-miss-it instances, but there is a picture behind him of a bird that very much represents the bird mask that the kil- that the uh, guy with the shotgun was wearing behind him. Oh, man. Yeah. So my hat is off to you, Dustin Rolls, for catching this, because it really does. I, I watched it a second time, and it really, it, it's shown very briefly twice, but in a cut that is like two to three seconds long. And it's not even detailed. He had to zoom in on the image to prove it because it's kind of, you know, it's in the background, but it just made me think is the therapist, the guy who shot Velcoro, because he's already a pretty weird guy. Everything from the rocks that resemble, you know, vaginas to the Jack Nicholson, I'm wearing sunglasses inside thing. And he just did not seem entirely trustworthy. So this really made me think, okay, I think that Dustin Rawls, like, struck gold with this potential theory. Well, also, he knows Annie's father. Yes, you're right. I forgot about that. Also, Annie's father runs that commune that that we learn uh, is around Gurneville. Is that how you say it? Gurneville? That pronunciation is probably what I would go with, yeah. And during this investigation... Annie gets a call from her other partner who tells her that, hey, by the way, that missing girl we heard about, she got a call from someone in Gurneville. Oh. So clearly there's something fishy going on, Mm -hmm. and these two cases are linked, 
and her father's commune and this therapist could somehow be involved. So do, do you want to just go ahead and, and say it, Charlie? Is this psychiatrist our first official suspect? He's my first official suspect. I mean, it's either him or Michael Keaton. Take your pick. Uh, so Michael Keaton? That, it was my attempt at a really lame Birdman joke. Ah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. I'm. I. It's been a long day. I should have caught that. Eddie, Eddie Redmayne's corpse was actually in the background of the house too. You really had to look for it. So. <laughs> oh man. All right. The next thing I want to talk about, Charlie. I want to talk about how these these three characters relate to each other. It took me so long to figure out what the deal is. I had to rewatch the first couple minutes of this episode several times. Okay, so Paul, played by Taylor Kitsch, he's a state highway patrolman. Annie is a Ventura County detective. And Ray is a Vinci police officer. Mm-hmm. So there, there's these three different overlapping areas of jurisdiction, which is probably why the body was dumped where it was. Honestly, <laughs> to make it e- to make it more convoluted for them to figure out what the hell's going on here. Yes, because you know the the state and the county and the city, they all have their own agendas. They all want to uh, solve this case in their own particular way uh ray is corrupt and the mayor wants him to direct the case a certain way and he's also uh beholden to frank as well annie works for the county they want her to use ray and try to turn him to their side so so he can be a source of information because they suspect that he's dirty and the state meanwhile wants paul to covertly investigate all this corruption that they think is going on in Vinci. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of looking over their own shoulders, trying to figure out who's watching me and do what am I, what do I secretly have to be investigating on the side? And it's all pretty complicated as to how they relate to each other. I have to be honest though, uh, Paul, not nearly as committed as Ray or Annie at all. In fact, most of the episode, he argues with people and talks to his mom, and I'm so glad that you and I both agree that it, he is so clearly gay, or has, like, exp- had some sort of gay relationship or encounter, because it's, like, that was pretty on the nose, where he's talking to one guy and says, oh, this fag at the bank was hitting on me, and I almost clobbered him, and the guy's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> then on top of that, there's a scene towards the end where... He's staring at what looks like people coming out of a gay bar, and then a guy gets out of a car and it starts calling someone on his cell phone, and he's drinking and like staring at him. Yeah, it's like he basically he's watching this uh, this gigolo get picked up, essentially. Mm-hmm. Which would explain his indifference to you know getting a blowjob last episode from this woman who clearly cares about him, but he could not really give a shit about. That was also one of the weaker scenes of the episode for me where I kind of burst out laughing, where he just said, oh, fuck off. Who the fuck am I supposed to be? And she goes, I don't know who you're supposed to be. Fuck off. Fuck off. It was just all (laughs) these fuck offs one after another. And I was just thinking either this was like badly improvised or, you know, I don't know. It, It kind of fell flat for me. And then, you know, she has to say, you're hurting me being here. Don't call me again. 
and you're doing you're doing this, not me, as he leaves. And I was just kind of like, eh, I Taylor Kitsch, I'm sorry to say, I know he's he's not had the greatest uh, luck as of late, and I don't blame his performance, but this character really bores me compared to Ray and Annie. It's just, or or his scenes with other characters come off as very generic and monotonous in comparison to all the other main players. I think that there could be something there, uh, and I, I think that Taylor Kitsch is doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I do not blame his performance at all. I think Taylor Kitsch is fine. I mean, look, when it comes to uh, self-loathing and indifference, we both mentioned he looks pretty dead-eyed last week while he was getting that blowjob. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever seen any like any on-screen depiction of a blowjob with more indifference. And honestly, if they get more into uh, what it's like to be masculine and a cop in L.A. where you have to be, you know, hard-skinned and you have to embrace your masculinity and the conflict of, you know, uh, dealing with the fact that you're gay and in the closet, I think that could be great. I just, so far not as interesting to me now it could he could turn into the most compelling character of this uh of the season and i do like that we're hinting at um the possibility that he could be gay because as far as i remember there was no topic or theme on queer identity in the first season so that could be nick pizzolato trying to extend his range in terms of thematic depth and trying to uh get in the mind of of a character who is not nearly as relevant in uh popular culture on uh tv or in film right now but at the same time the writing for his particular scenes just kind of fell flat for me well i feel like they're still keeping things a little bit too vague i mean so Mm -hmm. he he goes to there's a scene where he's with this older woman and he calls her ma and then she says something like well we don't have to do that now or something yeah. and i'm like wait 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 so are you really his mother or not i don't understand what it seemed like she was because she was talking about his prom date getting fat yeah it, it was just very strange that that relationship seemed very odd and she was getting very close Mm-hmm. And there's this quasi-sexual vibe between them, and it's clear that he was burned as a child. Mm-hmm. But we don't know if that's the result of uh, his father, because when he brings up someone who I assume may be his father by name, his mother says, don't talk to me about that motherfucker. Right. But the but the mom also, like, and I know this is a minor detail, maybe it means nothing, maybe Nick Pizzolatto just likes Clint Eastwood movies, but, like, it seems like the mom loves Clint Eastwood movies, and Clint Eastwood in, back then was the definition of a masculine protagonist, and that kind of came off to me as maybe he's been raised in an environment that is so brutal and abusive, and this is the only way he can cope with it is just by pretending to be tough and uh, possibly heterosexual. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So clearly he's got some uh, some closeted sexual identity issues. Also, Annie, looking at that porn, she's visiting the escort websites and then stumbles across this site with, uh, if it was real quick, but it was, uh, if you look closely, you can see that it's advertising things related to like whips and chains. And she says, well, I'm going to watch this video here. Uh, so I, we get the impression maybe that could have been the kinky thing that she wanted to do in the bedroom. Maybe some BDSM type stuff. 
Yeah, maybe it's related to I. It's funny you bring that up. I was just thinking, oh, our our guy, our 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 murder victim is really into sex. I have to get in the mind of him and think, where would I go if I were into kinky sex acts? But I didn't think of that. That's a good. Uh, that's a good uh, observation. I honestly completely forgot about the bedroom scene while watching this episode from the first from the previous uh, episode. And can I just say, I think Ani, if Ray truly is dead. Well, even if Ray isn't dead, I think Annie is the most compelling character and fascinating to me because she kind of defies gender stereotypes, and Rachel McAdams does a terrific job of playing her, and in this episode, she gets to do a lot more other than talk to people who tell us who she is to her face, as if, you know, we they can see us watching the show, and I found her relationship with Colin Farrell to be interesting, or Velcoro to be interesting, I think that... Her fascination with knives is pretty compelling and actually pretty provocative in its own way. She says at one point, the fundamental difference between the two sexes is that one can kill the other with their bare hands. If a man lays his hands on me, I'm going to like basically bleed the motherfucker out. And we better get some awesome knife action from Rachel McAdams based on that dialogue. And that, see, and, th- and that just makes me wonder, again, like, does that carry over into the bedroom? Does she like to be this really dominant or alter- alternatively submissive person sexually? Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that theme, we'll, we'll probably be seeing it again because uh, Casper Psychiatrist does mention, oh, he was a very passive person. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, Frank goes to the club to get more information, the escort is like, oh, yeah, he was very, very weak. He just liked to sit and watch. So mm-hmm. this whole idea of dominance and submission seems to be a, a major theme that's that's cropping up here. Yeah. And didn't they say when they were looking at his body that he had been hung upside down or practically hung upside down? And when we see when Velcoro, I know we'll get to what happens at the end, but Velcoro does see something in the home that he apparently visits once a month at least for kinky sex. Uh, There is something that looked like a device to hang him upside down. It's basically a sex swing. Yeah, it's basically a sex dungeon. Uh, And that's interesting. I find if there's one thing I do think this season is more intriguing about this season compared to last is the ideas of sexuality that are being uh, represented here. Because in the first season, it basically was a very typical macho heterosexual vibe from both characters. Although, I mean, Matthew McConaughey wasn't sexually active that much, seen with Michelle Monaghan aside. But I do like that Nick Pizzolatto seems to be trying to explore how sex plays a part in these characters' lives, whether they want to admit it or not. And I think that that's going to be something that may be fascinating in a different kind of way this uh, for this year. So Right. I mean, you've got Ray whose life basically blew up after an incident involving sexual violence. You've Mm -hmm. got uh, Paul, who we believe is probably a closeted homosexual. And we've got Annie, who's apparently into some kinky BDSM stuff. And it's implied could have had something strange going on when she was a child because she talks about how she grew up in this commune with four other children 
two of whom are in jail and two of whom committed suicide. So clearly something kind of messed up was probably going on. Yeah, and is it, like, it seems as if they could be hinting that David Morrissey is running some sort of polygamist cult. I mean, we don't really see any. Maybe I just watched too much Big Love, but (laughs) that seemed like it was a possibility, maybe? I'm not sure. It definitely was not a safe environment or one that was suitable for a child to be growing up in. And the, the references to it as on the nose as they were at least gave us a sense as, okay, this commune is pretty messed up and had a deep psychological impact on her. And that I did find to be fascinating. Velcoro isn't even interested in picking up women. He's still not hung over his ex-wife. And can we talk about his ex-wife, actually? The scene with his ex-wife? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, his ex-wife is played by Abigail Spencer, who is a terrific underrated actress on one of the most underseen but best shows on television right now, Rectify. Absolutely. Everyone listening to this podcast needs to just stop listening right now and go watch Rectify. Absolutely. Rectify is a, it's a slow burn of a show, but it's 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 slow in the best possible ways, not in the ways that I find this season to be slow and confusing. Rectify is basically all about character. It's not a plot-driven show, but it deals with a lot of interesting themes on family and uh, crime and forgiving past sins. And I was so excited when Abigail Spencer showed up as the ex-wife. And then I have to say, as much as I love her, it was the worst written scene of the episode for me because she literally says... You're a bad person, Ray. You're you're bad. You're a bad person, Ray. You're bad for my son. And I was thinking, oh, couldn't you have written something a little better than that? I actually didn't mind that, Charlie, because I, I feel like in the heat of the moment, people are that blunt. <laughs> and they, they do say things like that. I've never called someone a bad person to their face, though. I might have, well, to be honest, I might have said something maybe a little more passive-aggressive. <laughs> but at the same time... I, 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 I think overall that works for me, and it just goes to further cement this idea that Ray is a horrible human being, and he knows that he's a horrible human being, and he is desperately trying to claw his way out. I mean, let's be honest, Charlie, everyone knows he's dirty, mm-hmm. Ray knows he's dirty, and yet he's he seems to be trying not to be. He doesn't take the money that... Uh, Frank leaves on the table for him. He doesn't deny it when Annie asks him straight up, how compromised are you? Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to me like he's he wants to be better. And I think that Colin Farrell does a really, really good job of communicating that, that just that this is a really, really awful person who mm-hmm. recognizes that he's awful and recognizes that he, he has these issues he can't quite get over and is still desperately trying to anyway. That is true. And if there's one good line out of that scene that I did like, and it made me reflect upon it more once, both second time around, and it lingered with me when the episode was over, if there was one line of dialogue I liked in that scene and what I found to be kind of clunky, after Abigail Spencer says, you know, I got a call saying that you uh, beat up uh, this boy's father, he says... A good beating provides personal growth. Yes. And I thought after he got shot, I was like, is he dead? Or is this just a beating that's going to provide him with some personal growth? Yeah, right. So, right. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about this ending, Charlie. Yep. Let's just come right out and say it. 
He's not dead. I don't think so, but at the same time, like, how can you survive that? I don't care if you were wearing a bulletproof vest or if it was rock salt a la Kill Bill Volume 2 style. It was like, how close was that shotgun to his chest? Well, when it happened, Charlie, I was like, oh my goodness. They just killed off Colin Farrell, who they've been featuring in all the ads for mm-hmm. the show. This is amazing. Good job, HBO. <laughs> you got us. And then I thought about it and was like, no, wait, wait, wait. He he really can't be dead. I, I just don't think that that would work with what they have set up. It, it's like it, either he's tr- Nick Pizzolatto is trying to pull uh, Vivian Lee and Psycho twists where we killed off the protagonist right as soon as you were getting to know them and not expecting this or... The other thing I was thinking of is, didn't Casper, wasn't Casper tortured? So maybe he shot him with something? I don't know. The fact that it's a shotgun, like, it wasn't a pistol. It was a big, big shotgun. So that made me think, okay, if he isn't dead, which I'd have a hard time believing he's he wouldn't die from that, maybe he's going to string him up and torture him like Casper did. But what good would that do? Also, we can agree that it's pretty, I mean, obviously Pizzolatto is trying to lead us in this direction, that it looks very obvious that Vince Vaughn set him up, based on the fact that before he enters this house, Vince Vaughn brings in address of this place and says it's where he went to go have sex once a month. And you should check it out. You should go check it out, man. And how dare you be pessimistic? Go check it out. Go do this for me. It looks like Vince Vaughn and Birdman are in cahoots. Um, I don't think so. No? You think it's a misdirect? You think that he's trying to lead us astray and think that Vince Vaughn, while corrupt, is not nearly as devious as this? Well, look, we know that Birdman was involved in Casper's death, and we know that Frank did not want Casper dead. Yep, that's true. So, I, yeah, I, I don't think that Frank was setting Ray up. But are you afraid that... It could have been a plan gone wrong. Maybe Vince Vaughn is... Yeah, because it's clear that Vince Vaughn is pissed off Casper's dead, but maybe... I I don't know. That, that it's Obviously, we don't have the answers, and obviously that's the point of the show uh, and ending the episode where it did so we could ask all these questions, but it did seem like he was really egging him on to go visit this uh, sex dungeon, which also I, I, I completely forgot until the second time around. There's some sort of webcam there, so maybe Rachel McAdams will find some footage or something of the, the, the shooting or Casper's murder. Yes, clearly this, this sex stuff and potentially uh, Casper's murder as well was being filmed for the internet. And it looks like there's padding on the walls to make everything soundproof, which, mm-hmm. which is why the final shot is from the outside of the house and you can't hear anything. Yeah, it looked like something out of David Cronenberg's Videodrome <laughs> in some ways where, yeah, it, it looked like he was almost streaming it to a porn or a snuff film site or something. Right. But Well, we actually got an email from our friend Floyd. Yes, we did. Who pointed out that there were some photos released from the set of True Detective Season 2 that reveal Colin Farrell talking to Rachel McAdams, and he's got a bandage around his waist, so clearly he's not dead. Yeah, and good finding that, because I I couldn't find that photo, period. 
and I did look to see if there were any images from upcoming episodes that we hadn't seen from Colin Farrell. I know that's almost cheating to go back and look at the trailers and be like, oh, he can't be dead. We haven't seen this scene yet. Because it also could have been left on the cutting room floor and used merely for advertising purposes. But that is a good point. At the same time, and I could be wrong, wasn't the shotgun aimed at his chest and not his stomach? It looked like the wrapping was more around, like, not so much his chest. Or or is it his chest? I, I'm not looking at the it, photo it right now, It looked like his Andrew. chest to me. Uh, okay. In the photo, yeah, he's got a, a bandage wrapped around his stomach. I don't know. But, yeah, good find, Floyd. I'm a little bit annoyed because now it's spoiled. And I'm like, oh, I guess he, he's not Oh, dead. but, Andrew, that was such good work. He's he's being a detective. Yes. We can't disencourage our listeners not to do work like this. You're right. You're right. Floyd is the true detective. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so he, here's what Floyd said in his email, though. He said, now the question is, what is the plan to save Ray? Because I'm going to have trouble believing he survives two point-blank blasts from a shotgun, even if he's wearing a vest. Completely agree, yeah. <laughs> so the Birdman is shooting rock salt or something? I guess we'll have to watch and see. By the way, why in the hell would you decide to holster your gun the moment you see the pool of blood? I mean, literally, he's creeping through yes. the house with his gun drawn, <laughs> sees a pool of blood, and immediately puts his gun away. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good point. <laughs> I just assumed that the blood was dry, and he was like, oh, this isn't fresh, this is the murder scene, I, no one's here. It looked pretty wet to me. I mean, unless some stupid thought, like, hit, uh, you know, there's no way he thought, oh, someone spilled a Bloody Mary or something. Like, that was clearly blood. <laughs> there's, right. It, it looked pretty fresh to me, but... It does remind me of the spaghetti monster from the first season, too, with villains, mysterious villains wearing creepy masks. And that bird mask is pretty, it is kind of what nightmares are made out of. That was a pretty eerie image to see him emerge from that point of the frame wearing that grotesque mask. So Yeah, that scene was really, really well directed by Justin Lin. I agree. That was the best scene of the, the episode. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the best scene of these first two episodes. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Originally, I said it was the scene between uh, Velcoro and Annie when Annie discusses differences between genders and her fascination with knives. But I, upon reflection, I agree. It was a very suspenseful, very well done scene. That, and I didn't know that was going to be the last scene of the show. I had no idea what was going to happen. I thought he was going to find something and leave. And I did not expect him to emerge from that corner of the frame and just blow him away, pretty much. I think that Ray is going to survive, and I think that this experience is going to motivate him to basically say, all right, I'm done being dirty, time to pull myself out of this mess, and I think he's going to start to really cooperate with Annie. I hope Annie pulls some sort of Cl Clarice Starling where she takes the case and just goes with it and completely solves it mostly on her own, since Paul seems really distracted and Ray's probably going to be, if he's alive, recovering in a hospital bed for several weeks. I don't think we're going to see him next episode. I did watch the preview for next week's episode, and they were probably trying to hide Ray on purpose just to stick with the ambiguity of is he dead or is he alive. But I think Colin Farrell's going to be probably absent from next week's episode unless he comes back in the next five minutes. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Charlie, because even if we hadn't gotten this email from... Floyd with the uh, with the picture from the set. I started thinking, oh, maybe Ray isn't dead 
as soon as they showed that preview for next week, because there is a line of dialogue where someone says something like, uh, one of our detectives was shot or something. And I was like, yeah. wait, wait, wait. They didn't say killed. <laughs> shot. If he was dead, they would have said killed. So yeah. he's going to live at least a little while longer. I, I hope so. I mean, and this isn't, you know, Game of Thrones has done this kind of thing before, but where they kill off the first build actor or actress. But usually it takes like a whole season for them to do that. And it would be really surprising to me if Colin Farrell, who is the first build actor in the show, is just dead two episodes in. All right, let's move on to some listener feedback. As always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We got a couple of emails that we need to go over. We already mentioned uh, our email from Floyd about Ray and how Ray is probably still alive. But Floyd also sent us another email about the first episode of this season. And he wrote in and he said... Quote, just wanted to point out an observation concerning the opening shot of this series that I haven't heard or read anyone mention. So the opening shot is a field covered with what appears to be construction markers stuck in the ground. I guess I assume this is the ground breaking for the rail system. However, right in the middle of the shot, there is this odd fade-in of a sign that says something about contamination. The weird thing is that it never fades all the way in. It just fades in about halfway like it's going to a different shot, then fades out, and it's just back to the shot of the construction markers and the mountains in the background. It's kind of hard to describe, and I only really paid attention to it on a second viewing. Check it out. I know we can get a little a little overzealous at times with looking into things, but with this being the opening shot, I couldn't help but be curious. Absolutely, and I think that's intended to be kind of off-putting the first time you watched it, because, you know, it's the first shot of the first episode, you have no context whatsoever, and I think Nick Pizzolatto and Justin Lin intended for that to be something that you catch on to more if you were to do a repeat viewing. And yeah, that that was exactly what I thought too, is, oh, that must have been the land that was purchased that Vince Vaughn no longer has uh, dibs on, I guess. Yeah, I just found myself thinking, okay, that's the the land for the railway construction. But I do remember seeing that fade in with the contamination sign. And the question is, is is the land literally contaminated by something due to all the toxic waste being dumped? Or are they just trying to establish that it's thematically contaminated and metaphorically contaminated due to all of the uh, corruption surrounding it? Mm-hmm. And the streamers that are on those poles, they're pink, right? I know that's a weird thing to bring up, but pink isn't usually the kind of color I would think of like inspiring menace or moral ambiguity. Uh, am I looking too deep into this, Andrew? Usually I would think they'd be red. Or green to symbolize greed. yeah yeah green it's like greed but with an n instead of a d yeah like yeah Yeah. color of money (laughs) we also got an email from uh, gerardo who writes in and also picked up on some of these uh these david lynchian vibes gerardo writes for some reason after watching the episode i thought that the series might be taking a twin peaks twilight zone kind of turn i interpreted some of the things in the episode as bizarre or supernatural one, the whole woman in the bowl of milk scenario. It seemed very surreal, and I thought the woman was moving. It didn't look like a doll to me, but like an actual human. It was so bizarre to Belcoro that he asked his partner if he was seeing the same thing. 
to one of the police officers that arrived at the crime scene where they found Casper, asked Velcoro what Vinci was, and he replied, I think it's a city or something. Why wouldn't a police officer know the name of every city for the county that he works for? <laughs> I'm, I'm probably overanalyzing the small details. They may be insignificant, but the woman in the bowl of milk really threw me off. Also, because of the way the first season ended, when the guys saw that mysterious black hole in the sky that was never explained, do you think that they could slowly be folding in some kind of supernatural aspects to the show? That is a good point. And Twin Peaks is the closest thing that David Lynch has uh, done that re- that mostly resembles True Detective. It is a murder mystery about uh, Laura Palmer, who is a teenage girl who was found killed and in a town in on the West Coast, I believe in Washington, where it's an innocent little town. And then the deeper you find, you dig into it, the more corrupt everyone is. At the same time. Twin Peaks is the kind of show where characters will hallucinate white horses in the room or giants that will tell them messages and characters have dreams of little people speaking backwards with subtitles. And it's interesting that if David Lynch isn't influenced here, it's never been played so straight faced. David Lynch has never put on a straight face with this stuff. Twin Peaks is very uh, surreal and acknowledges that it is just trying to fuck with your head. So that is an interesting point. I'm not denying that David Lynch might have had an influence on Nick Pizzolatto or Justin Lin or Kerry Fuganaga here. It's just very interesting to me that they played so straight-faced and grim when Twin Peaks had a lot of bizarre dark humor or just unexplainable plot turns. There are some instances of Twin Peaks, particularly in the second season, where certain things happen to characters and I can't even fully comprehend or explain to someone what just happened. Well, look, Charlie, I mean, we we hypothesized during season one, hey, is any of this supernatural stuff that they're hinting at, could it be real? Could this become a crazy kind of supernatural show here at the end? And it never did. So I get the impression that Pizzolatto is the kind of writer who wants to take a straightforward mystery and detective story and he wants to add these elements, and he wants to touch on these themes of uh, philosophy and existentialism and the supernatural and, and are things w- the way they really appear. And he wants to decorate this traditional genre mm-hmm. with these things to, to just make it a little bit more vibrant and, and interesting. I don't feel like he's the kind of person that would ever fully commit and say, oh yeah, there's literally something supernatural going on. Yeah, because episodes of Twin Peaks, there are some episodes where I can't even explain in words what actually happens because it's just so crazy and it it, it is very much kind of winking at you. David Lynch tends to have a very uh, twisted sense of humor in terms of uh, defying uh, viewer expectations in a way that totally contradicts with the style that Kerry Fuganaga and Justin Lin uh, brought to Nick Pizzolatto's screenplays here. That being said, if this season finale ends with everyone in the Black Lounge, I will lose my shit and just start (laughs) applauding. Or the Black Lodge, excuse me, not the Black Lounge. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's interesting that... Uh, they have all of these elements in there, um, and I think that adds a lot to the show. I mean, everything from the Yellow King and all those literary allusions in the first season to now we've got this guy in the bird mask and references to Greek mythology, and mm-hmm. I like how 
they're taking all of these elements and they're using it to to add atmosphere to the show and and just kind of craft a detective story that's unlike your typical detective story, even though it's within this familiar set of tropes. I just, I don't think that they're going to go any further than that. Yeah, I think that it's going to be little touches here and there, like The Woman in Milk or The Bird Mask, because the first season, yeah, we were talking about this before, all throughout the first season, and based on where the first season ended, where it just ended up being a man and not, not even anyone that high up in political power, just kind of this creep who was just killing women for misogynistic reasons. Uh, I think that Nick Pizzolatto likes dipping his toes into this, these theories and having characters have almost warped uh, philosophies that help them cope with the very real, very brutal crimes and past traumas, much like how Matthew McConaughey, as we said before, was just a bit of a loony. And we thought that it might go supernatural, but it's really just a way for him to find his own loopy sort of way to cope with everything that has happened in his life. And I feel like that's what's happening uh, with these characters here. Yeah, I agree. And and last thing I'll mention, uh, regarding the, the bowl of milk with the woman. So that is a real piece of art. Really? Yes, that is a real piece of art by a guy named Peter Sarkeesian. It's called White Water. And it's a piece of video art. The, uh, the woman is basically some sort of hologram or, or video projection. Oh. Why didn't they clarify that for us? Clearly the characters knew what it was, or knew it was some sort of holographic or video-projected installation. Why did Pizzolatto... I mean, I guess there's the... We gotta give him a sense of intrigue as to what the hell this is, but it did still leave me baffled in a way that I didn't find to be satisfying. I mean, it was clear that it was some sort of piece of art, just based on yeah. everything else in Casper's house. Wait, that wasn't it wasn't like Honey I Shrunk the Kids where the you know, a woman was in a <laughs> bowl of milk, much like how Rick Moranis almost eats his son in that movie. Right, right. Yeah. But no, it's a it's it is a it's a piece of uh visual art called Whitewater, and apparently Pizzolato specifically mentioned it in the script. He specifically wanted that piece of work. I mean it it, it definitely is a striking image and it seems to tie together or it seems to reference back to themes not just with this season, but last season. I just wish that there was a little more clarity there. It was, it, 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 it that being said, I mean, I'm not going to deny that. That, that was, was an editing kerfuffle. Yeah, there. maybe there was a line that's on the cutting room floor or something, some shot that, that, that represented what it really was. I mean, I'm not going to deny that I didn't like looking at it, but it, it just left me completely confused. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any other comments, Charlie, about this episode? Uh, no, I think that we covered basically everything that I wanted to talk about. I just, uh, I'm not on the edge of my seat, can't wait till Sunday excited, but I definitely am much more intrigued than I was last week as to where everything is headed. Yeah, I feel like the season was off to kind of a rocky start, but now that we've gotten the basics of the corruption plotline down... And we know who all the characters are and, and basically how they all relate to each other and what they all want. I feel like the season now has finally gotten moving. And I am, I'm curious to see where it goes. 
So uh, that'll wrap it up for this episode. We would love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. You can also email us at detectivist at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about Detect This. And you can also donate to us through the website. Just go to filmgeekradio.com, click the support tab and the donate button. You can also visit our affiliates page. Uh, and if you travel to any of our affiliates, including Amazon through Film Geek Radio, then it'll, it'll kind of track where you came from and we will get a small percentage of whatever you purchase from our affiliates. So uh, we really appreciate all your help and your support. Charlie, where can people find more of your work? You can follow me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H-91. You can also follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, just search Charlie Nash, and uh, my name should pop up there. And uh, you can also find work that I've written for various sites, mainly film review-related, on Movie Mezzanine, All Things Horror, Edge on the Net, and Cinematic Essential. You can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Detect This. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And I have body image issues. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!